Plucky Ladies podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. I think the first time I snorkeled, I was an adult. I never snorkeled as a kid. But we take our kid, like we've been taking our That's boys awesome. since they were like two or three to Hawaii. Yeah. And um, my littlest one, his first experience, he was out, you know, his brother goes out and our older one just goes, like he's not afraid. He's like five or six and he just puts the thing on and starts swimming away from shore. And we're like, oh, I guess one of us should go with him, you know, so we don't know how far he's going to go. And then the little one decides I'm going to follow him, you know. So he's like three, but he oh. can swim. He puts on his thing and he just starts following his brother while I'm watching and I'm making my way in, putting my stuff on. And I see, it was a little choppy, mm-hmm. and I see a wave come up over my three-year-old and he goes under and he comes up. Now the water's gone down into the snorkel yeah. and I can see him start get distressed. So I run out there and I grab him, you know, and take the thing off his head and he's sputtering and he starts crying. And I never want to snorkel again. Oh, no. But it didn't last. Yeah, he good. snorkeled. <laughs> but it was scary. Yeah, that is really scary. Three years old. Wow, that's amazing. I know. Love that's it. really cool. I love it. Welcome, Diane Thompson. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Thanks for having me. So um, I was drawn to you uh, for several reasons, but one of which is that you are in the geosciences department, which is my home department. So of course, I wanted to talk about that. But also because you do something that is sort of outside of where your childhood was, which is that you're an ocean scientist, but you grew up in Minnesota. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and sort of how you find your found your way to the ocean. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's always a funny story. And then most of my actual uh, career has been spent in landlocked states like yeah. Arizona. So it's kind of ironic, and I get that a lot. Yeah. Um, so I really give all the credit to my parents, yeah. um, who are, so I'm the youngest of four. Oh, wow. And by the time I was growing up, they were really sick of Minnesota winters. Oh, I bet. So we actually, fortunately, traveled to Florida and the Caribbean a few times when I was sort of at that you know, formational age of yeah. like really discovering what I was interested in. And so that combined with my passion for science, since I can remember, um, really quickly brought me to marine science. So you remember as a child being interested in science? Yeah. So actually, um, I just got married this summer and my dad told the story and I almost forgot how it happened. But I apparently went to um, the local creek with a class when I was in, I think, third grade. Mm-hmm and came home and could not stop talking about all of the little critters that I found in the creek. And I think from that point on, my parents were pretty clear on the fact that I was going to be a scientist. And it took me a little bit longer to figure it out. But certainly by the time I was like seven or eight, I was pretty certain I was going to do marine science. Which is awesome, but it seems unusual. Like you don't talk to that many scientists who say, oh, I was going to be a scientist from the time I was seven, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it depends, actually. I was on a ship uh, um, with a bunch of, it was a, an IODP, so International Ocean Drilling Project ship right. last summer. Mm-hmm. And it was actually supposed to be a, a, a cruise for teachers in science and um, specifically to expand diversity. And so it was a bunch mm-hmm. of women in underrepresented groups. And what struck me is actually all of us had a similar story of starting at a young age. And I don't know if it was just a cross-section of people that were in the room, but I wonder how common it actually is. Yeah, now that I say that, I say it's uncommon, but maybe I'm wrong because I don't actually have data. (laughs) Maybe it's geology because I have, you know, there are statistics out there with geology is often a science that people find their way to a little bit later or they find their way to it through another science maybe. Um, But I was someone who was not at all into science 
at all, I mean, until college. So I find it fascinating when I meet people who say, oh, I want to be a scientist from age seven. Well, when I say that, I think it's because we're all curious. We're all scientists yeah. as kids. And mm-hmm. whether or not we're, you know, actually thinking about it that way at the time, of course, now it's easy for me to say. But at the time, I was just curious about the natural world. And, right. you know, I, I attribute my parents recognizing that in me in, a, in an early age and encouraging me to do that. But I think the story was similar. And, and what was striking about the story is that it's, really key to have teachers and parents and others in your life that aren't stomping that out of you. And so right. I think especially for being a plucky woman in science, sure. part of it is just cultivating that curiosity. Yes. And so I'm fortunate to have people in my life that cultivated that curiosity. Were your parents scientists or academics? No. no. So I'm the first um, uh, person to get a post-undergraduate um, degree. And my sister was wow. the first to get um, an undergraduate degree. Really? So, yeah. So my parents, uh, were neither of them are scientists. They were both in banking. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, they they saw it in me and they encouraged it from from pretty much day one. So well, that's a strong message right yeah. there for encouraging your kids because I feel the same way. I think that even though I wasn't into science, my parents wouldn't have squashed that if I was. But I was not having those experiences as a child because we didn't have a lot of money, we didn't go on trips, yeah. things like that. So for me, you know, the most sort of sciency, I guess you could say, was either what we were doing in school or like digging out back in the dirt or something like that. But I wasn't exposed to something where my curiosity was really peaked. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 that's why I think any of those key experiences of just being out, and whether it's just camping in your backyard or, mm-hmm. you know, going on a trip, whatever, or going to a local aquarium. If you're growing up in Minnesota, you don't need to necessarily see the real thing, right? Sure. So that's why I've spent some time and now I'm excited to be at the biosphere too where we have you know ocean ecosystems that we can show the public and get people excited about these key issues without needing to necessarily go to the real ocean yeah that's right so tell us a little bit about b2 because i'm sure some people listening have been to the biosphere before and seen the ocean and i think it's one of the biggest attractions up there is the ocean but you're biased you're biased yes but i mean living in the desert i think all of us who who are landlocked and who live in the desert we tend to feel that draw like we want to learn about the ocean or get to the ocean because we don't see it right we're not near it every day. Um, So tell us a little bit about what you're doing up there and um, like how the public can can see what's up there and what they might see when they get there. Yeah, so I'm really excited. I mean, to be back at University of Arizona and be a part of the Biosphere 2 project. And I'm really coming in in this exciting time because there's been this vision over the last few years to transform what is currently an an algae-dominated system. So a reef that looks kind of like we expect reefs to look like in the future. So Mm -hmm. all the corals are gone Mm. from the original Biosphere 2 experiment. And now all that's left is is really algae, algae mm. everywhere. And so it's, okay. it's, it's a super degraded system um, for a number of reasons of, of the history of the, the, the Biosphere 2 ocean. But that pre- pre- presents a really unique opportunity. Mm. And so this is what the reefs might look like in the future. So how do we get a degraded system back to a healthy reef system? And mm. by that, it, it might not be the reefs that we have today, but one that still has the structure and function that we really rely on in our coral reefs. Yeah. And so we're testing, what does it take to get there? And there's a lot of really um, important new research on reef restoration. Mm. And so we're able to grow and transplant reefs um, uh, in in many places around the world. And so this is an opportunity to test those techniques, the materials, the roles of microbes Mm -hmm. in in that process, and and making surfaces um, viable for coral growth. Mm 
And then maybe even really risky types of things like can we harden corals to make their genes more resistant to stress? Sure. So um, we may have gotten a little ahead of ourselves. For people who don't know, no, but that's great because this is, I think this is really fascinating um, because this all ties into climate change and global change and things that are happening today. Um, But when you say degraded, Mm -hmm. um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, what a healthy reef is like versus what we're seeing today. Because um, one of the things that fascinated me the most in reading about your work was this idea of restoration of reefs because mm-hmm. we're kind of past the point now where we can just save the reefs that are already in existence, right? Reefs are feeling the effects of climate change and they're they're feeling it negatively. And now we're moving into a phase where people are thinking, of, like you, are thinking about how do we reverse it or help reefs to be healthy again. So can you talk a little bit about what that means, degraded versus healthy? Yeah, so I mean, so we rely on reefs for a number of goods and services. And mm-hmm. so in order to have really a functional reef, it has to have a lot of structure. Mm-hmm. So the, the complexity of, of surface, the 3D um, city, if you will, mm-hmm. of the reef, mm-hmm. much like New York, the complexity of the structure makes it um, such that it can support support the infrastructure of humans that live in in New York City. And so reefs are very much the same way. And so that 3D structure of the reef is really important. Mm -hmm. And when you remove some of the corals, remove some of that complexity, and you're left with um, a system that looks um, much more similar, uh, much less diversity of of species, um, much less habitat. Mm -hmm. And we rely on these reefs for food and for coastal protection. They're really our barriers to sea level change. And so there's a lot of um, reasons why it's really critical that we keep our coral reefs around besides the fact that they're beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they are beautiful, and that takes me back to you in your childhood saying you were going snorkeling at a young age. So do you remember the first time you went snorkeling? I do. I I was seven, Seven, um, and uh, off the coast of Florida, and then um, followed by, um, we did a lot of trips in the U.S. Virgin Islands, Mm -hmm. and so that's where I really fell in love in Buck Island, um, National Marine Sanctuary. And Mm -hmm. there's actually a pretty good story there, because I think I owe... Um, that reef in particular, my career, because I'm, you know, I'm only I'm 34 <laughs> some odd years old. Yeah. And I already have a, a story of reef degradation. And so, you know, when I saw that reef at the age of about eight yeah. and fell in love. Mm-hmm. And I went back during my undergraduate years as a fellow for the National Marine Fisheries Service mm-hmm. and went to the same reef. Mm-hmm grabbed my snorkel, jumped in the water. I was so excited. Like I could not get in the water fast enough. And by the time I got in the water, um, my snorkel just about fell out of my mouth because the corals that I had remembered were like totally dead. Oh gosh. Um, I think there was like a spot that was like, you know, know, a few inches of like living tissue and the rest was just dead. And that's an experience that I'll never forget. And so that really led me to where I am now, which is studying how we can better understand the climate change story because Mm -hmm. that's critical and we can protect at the local scale but really we have to be thinking about these large-scale solutions. Yeah I think a lot of people don't even realize that reefs are alive Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they are hard and so if you've ever snorkeled or scuba'd which I've done I mean I've been scraped by the reef before and it's really hard and it hurts and you think of it almost like a rock Yep. And as a geologist, I know what the materials are that make up reefs that make them hard. Yep. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that, this dichotomy of the hard reef, but what it means to say it is really alive and what yeah. that living system is all about. Absolutely. So a lot of people like to say that it's, you know, a little bit of rock, a little bit of plant, a little bit of, of, 
of animal. And yeah. so the, the rock, as you say, is the, the skeleton, that much like the shells that you find on the beach, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the skeleton of, of the coral animal itself. And then you actually have uh, plants as well. So corals have algae that live in their tissues that mm. provide them a lot of their energy that they need to grow. Mm. And then, of course, you have a thin little veneer of animal on top of all that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, which is fascinating. I didn't know the part about the algae in their tissue. And so they're providing energy through photosynthesis. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So it's a a symbiosis. So it's a two-way street. And so corals provide some of the um, foundational um, needs for the algae, including, you know, space to live, um, among other things. And and they get the, the nutrients in return. And so this allows them to live in these really nutrient poor, these really clear, beautiful tropical waters that we all love to snorkel in. Right. They're clear and beautiful in part because they don't have a lot of the nutrients that a system would typically need, mm. but they're getting some of that from the algae in return. And algae is another one of those things that a lot of people might hear that term and think of it as something negative, like it's what grows in your pool and it's gross, it's kind of green and slimy, but in actuality, it's a really big part of the ocean ecosystem. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so so algae on the reef is not a bad thing. But right. the, the thing is, there's only so much space. There's only so much infrastructure, if you will, on, on a coral reef. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's this trade-off between the, that space being covered with algae and the space being covered with the living reef. Right. And so um, as corals get stressed, in particular with climate change and, and, and temperature, uh, rising temperatures, uh, we're getting more and more algae covering those spaces instead mm. of coral. Oh, wow. So do you know why when you went snorkeling when you were eight and you saw that big change in the reef, do you know what, what was the cause? What was it that made that reef die? So basically? that reef in particular, it's a number of things. Um, the, the Caribbean reefs, as you know, have also been really decimated by hurricanes. Mm-hmm. There's also other local um, factors, including you know fishing and, and tourism. But Really, a lot of it is these large-scale events of, of temperature stress caused by warming. And so we get these these large-scale events that we call coral bleaching events. Mm-hmm. And so when temperatures, so it turns out temperatures live really at their sort of upper limit of, of comfort level. And so when temperatures rise above that level, for, for reasons that you know we sort of understand and come down to, to various types of, of stress and, and chemicals released by the algae, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, the corals actually expel that symbiotic algae, that, that algae that's giving them their energy. Oh no, yeah. And so if they're unable to regain the algae, they actually um, die. Oh my goodness. And that's all related to temperature. So that's one of the major, major factors, yes. Yeah, and then, so when I read about coral bleaching, I also um, have heard about that there is a relationship between acidity in the ocean and how reefs respond to that acidity, and that acidity is linked to temperature as well. Yeah. So acidification of the ocean, talk a little bit about how that plays into what's happening to the corals today as well. Yeah, absolutely. So acidification is a super important driver as well. So what's happening is that as, you know, we're... Uh, burning fossil fuels mm-hmm. and putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that's naturally being taken up by the ocean. In fact, the oceans in a lot of ways are saving our behinds from some of the, the warming that we would see otherwise. Yeah, I've heard this before. So, But then once the CO2, the carbon dioxide, is in the ocean, it turns into a weak acid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it lowers the pH of the ocean. This is what um, ocean acidification um, it, uh, 
is, is termed for. Mm -hmm. And so what the p impacts that it has on the reefs is that it, it makes it harder and harder for the corals to grow. Mm -hmm. So that skeleton that they um, make their, um, their, their um, that they grow their tissue on mm -hmm. is harder and harder to create as the right. oceans are becoming more acidified. Because that material actually does dissolve a little bit in that acid. So if it becomes um, corrosive, it can actually dissolve. Yeah. Um, but even then, long, long before it becomes corrosive, it is harder and harder because the amount of CO2, carbon dioxide in the ocean, also um, impacts the amount of the ion that um, is needed for the calcium carbonate oh, right. skeleton. And so the Degrowth. carbonate ion mm -hmm. becomes um, lower and lower in concentration right. in the oceans as yep. the oceans become more and more acidic. Yeah, it's another thing I'm not sure everyone realizes is that the oceans um, absorb CO2 right out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That rain, as it falls through the atmosphere, can absorb CO2 and become acid rain, yep. slightly acidic. And exactly. so we don't think about these things as being acidic because we wouldn't feel it as acidic on our skin or anything like that. But when it comes to chemical reactions and the growth of things like coral, it actually is very sensitive yeah, to those things. And interestingly, um, the uh, ocean acidification is a bit of a misnomer because it's not actually acidic yet. It's long oh, from it. Really? But even small changes towards more and more um, acidic ocean, mm -hmm. um, so lower and lower pH, um, small amounts can have a large impact on organisms like corals that mm -hmm. grow their skeletons out of calcium carbonate. Yeah, and in addition to growing, I was learning from reading about your work that they also reproduce, mm -hmm. which again is something I wouldn't necessarily think of with corals, but they are living things. So how do they do that? Yeah, so a lot of the corals actually um, reproduce in these mass spawning events, they're called. Mm -hmm. And so basically, um, male and female uh, coral polyps, so individual coral animals, release eggs and sperm into the water column where they then fertilize oh, wow. and float passively um, with the currents. Oh my goodness. So there actually are male and female corals. Yeah, some are hermaphroditic, but there are male and female. It depends on the species. Oh, it depends on the species. Mm -hmm. So, and is there a way to know? If they, before they spawn, or you would only know when they release whatever they release into the water column? So there's been a lot of work um, uh, across different species tracking yeah. when they spawn, and that's actually where, you know, I've done some work on why they spawn when they do, mm -hmm. and so it varies by coral and by location. Mm. And so interestingly, we found that in certain, oh, this is well known for a while, that in certain spots actually spawn twice a year, and so other spots they only spawn once a year. Mm. And so what's driving the timing of of when they spawn during the year has been long debated. Some think it's because of temperature, some think it's because of light. Mm -hmm. And so my work recently um, has been looking for that answer. Oh, wow. Uh, and one of the hypotheses that was put forth quite a few years ago was that it has to do with wind. Mm. And when wind is weak, uh, those those fertilized larvae stay closer to home. Sure. And so they're more likely to uh, to transplant onto that reef where their parents were mm -hmm. than onto some other reef. Yeah. Um, and so I used a model to test that. And I so far I found just that, that oh, wow. in the months where corals tend to spawn in this particular region are months when the, the winds and currents are particularly weak. Oh, wow. So maybe they know and they want to keep their kids close to home. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Just like us. <laughs> we don't, I mean, I don't know. I have two young ones, and sometimes I can't wait for them to grow up and move out, and other times I think, oh, I don't I just want, want them to, to hold go. on to you forever. That's right. <laughs> now, who would think that a coral might be doing the same thing? Yeah. Um, and maybe there's some sort of uh, evolutionary reason that yeah. they want the corals to be closer to them. 
versus farther away. That would be interesting, too. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, it's, you know, obviously advantageous to have um, more corals on on your reef than on. Because if they they go forth and, and prosper elsewhere, then great. But they could go forth and end up not hitting a reef at all. And die. Exactly. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, that's a pretty interesting hypothesis. There's yeah. probably some validity there. I like that. Um, I wanted you to talk a little bit, too, about I saw with your master's work that you worked on um, the frequency of thermal stress events, things that can impact the reefs in particular. Um, and so I want to get a little bit at how your work relates to climate change. Yep. As we know, climate change is a bit of a touchy subject, mm-hmm. um, but there are a lot of scientists in many different fields doing research like yours that... Um, lend validity to our concerns about climate change. So I'm curious sort of what you found in that master's work compared to what you're finding today and if you have seen evidence that indeed this is something to be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's a really good question because that's largely, I think, why I switched over to geosciences. Um, So I found in that work that, you know, really these large-scale climate events Mm -hmm. like El Nino's, which are these big events that happen in the Pacific that impact climate all all over the world, Mm -hmm. are what ultimately cause a lot of these coral bleaching events. Mm -hmm. Um, But we don't really understand with climate change, despite the importance of these events, not just for coral reefs, but for humans all over the world, how those events are gonna change as we warm our climate system. Mm -hmm. And so what I did find in that master's work though, is that corals in regions that are getting hit hard by these El Nino events all the time, so Mm -hmm. like the central Pacific, Mm -hmm. the eastern Pacific, they're just getting pounded and pounded and pounded. And when that event happens again, they're less likely to bleach severely because they are becoming um, more acclimated or adapted to that stress. And Mm -hmm. so subsequent studies have found very similar things. So we now know that it turns out that history, Mm -hmm. not surprisingly from a geoscience perspective, matters. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so really now my work is focusing more on using corals to understand the history of climate Mm -hmm. and using the chemistry of their skeletons that we were talking about earlier to give us a window into the past. Sure. And but to say that they're adapting, right, or there's something about them that they're they're becoming less and less prone to these extreme bleaching events as they experience it more, yep. is not to say that we should then say, oh, this isn't a concern because they're just adapt. Because I hear that all the time yeah. too. Oh, things just adapt and everything's fine. But in reality, the long-term effect could be catastrophic. Totally. And yeah. to come back to your earlier question, I realize I didn't completely answer it. So. Absolutely. They're adapting to historical um, frequency of these events. Mm -hmm. But what we do know that as the climate warms, that these events and the threshold over which corals are comfortable is going to be crossed more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And the time between the events is going to become less and less and less. Mm And so the time scale over which corals can acclimate and adapt is is becoming you know, too too um, too short. Like they're not right. going to be able to react fast enough. Yeah. And so climate change is it continues to be the major issue um, for the future of coral reefs. And really, that's why I've switched to understanding how and where and why the climate is changing because that is what we need to know to save the world's corals. And it's one of the things that we teach um, in geoscience courses is this idea of rate 
and time mm-hmm. in that um, in terms of the earth, especially because processes tend to be slow, that when you do things like warm the earth very quickly or acidify the oceans very quickly or whatever it is we're talking about, that the all of these things have a hard time adjusting to that and then you end up with consequences that you can't even dream of really because we've never experienced it before exactly and it's one of the reasons that so many client climate scientists talk about it's not just the warming itself but the rate at which we're doing the warming that yep. becomes important absolutely and so you that's something that i think people need to think about absolutely um, is that this is something happening on human time scales, which is not normal for the Earth. Absolutely. And yeah. corals grow slowly, so they, they need yeah. time. They need time. And we need to give them time. Yeah, and then for them to, to come back, right, if they're going to come back, takes a long time. Yeah. Probably but, a lot longer than it takes for them to disappear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But I like to have optimism. You sure. know, we have, we have hope. And I now that I've switched to thinking about climate and using corals to think about climate, I... Uh, I've cored through some corals um, to look at their skeleton, and mm-hmm. I've more often than not cored through something that has died, and it grew, regrew. And it regrew. So that gives me hope. Yeah. Um, they can, if we give them the time that they need, they can, They we will have reefs in the future. Yeah. And it's up to us to determine what those reefs will look like. What are some of the other places that you've been where you've actually either scuba or snorkeled in reefs and seen either really positive things or not so positive things? Yeah, so I've uh, scubaed for work all across the Pacific, so everywhere from the Galapagos in the far eastern Pacific to my newest site is in the Marshall Islands in the far northwestern Pacific. Okay. And then kind of everything in between and doing a lot of work in the Republic of Kiribati, which is kind of basically dead center in the, if you go straight south of Hawaii and hit the equator, uh, you'll hit some of my other field sites. Wow. Uh, So yeah, I've worked a little bit of everywhere. And, you know, there's stories of success and stories of failure in all of these sites. And um, certainly in the last few years, all of these sites have been getting hit really hard. We had a couple major back-to-back bleaching events. Um, and so the time is definitely now to, to do something about it. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. And you mentioned El Nino. I just want to go back to that to, for a mm-hmm. minute because El Nino is something that is actually a natural sort of cyclical thing that happens in the Pacific. Um, but as you mentioned, just like other processes on Earth, that itself, the El Nino events themselves, can be affected by a warming globe. Yep. So can you... Tell us a little bit about what El Nino is, and because it is natural, and I've heard this as well, it's a natural thing. It is natural, but how it intersects with climate change. Yeah, so uh, El Nino is this, you know, really f- a phenomenal um, uh, uh, climate system where, you know, normally in the Pacific you have, I, I like to describe it as a bathtub. So mm-hmm. if you imagine yourself standing on one end of the bathtub and, mm-hmm. and blowing across the bathtub, um, it really uh, creates this really strong dynamic where you have this this pooling of the water in the, the far side of the bathtub mm-hmm. that is the Western Pacific. Mm-hmm. And so you actually can see this from satellites. You have higher sea level in the West than you do in the East. Right. Um, and that's actually some of the warmest waters on Earth is in the Western Pacific. Mm-hmm. And so these winds are really critical for setting up this gradient across the Pacific that we typically see. And every few years, those winds actually weaken, and that warm water, if you will, kind of sloshes back in the bathtub mm-hmm. and moves eastward and bringing with it, you know, these high temperatures across the central and eastern Pacific. Right. And where that warm water is, mm-hmm. 
influences where rainfall is happening. And right. so the rainfall patterns change, uh, not just in the Pacific, but, but all over the world. And so here in the Southwest, we get a particularly wet winter when we have a El Nino, so it sort of pulls the storm systems closer to home here in Tucson as well. Right, which is a great point because it's another thing that sort of connects why climate change is important to everyone, not just people who live near the coast or who enjoy coral reefs or who live in a warm place, but you can live in the desert and your life can be affected by things that are happening in the equatorial Pacific Mm -hmm. um, and how Earth's climate system is also connected, which I find fascinating and maybe compelling as to why we think about these things so much. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to ask you if you can recall any instances in your life um, related to your work or otherwise where you had to call upon pluck to really get you through a situation or get you where you wanted to go. You probably have a lot of them because you're smirking (laughs) as if this is something you know well. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think as a woman in a still very male-dominated science field, Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that happens frequently. Um, And I think most of us that persevere have a lot of pluck in us. Um, And I definitely um, have a number of examples I can give, um, both humorous and others less humorous. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, it's been really exciting to see in the last few years a lot of the calling of of some of the behavior that's been actually pretty, you know, pretty toxic in, mm-hmm. in, in STEM fields. And so I think, you know, there is still quite a bit of misogyny. And so that there's stories there, but there's also stories just of, you know, overcoming challenges in the field and, yes. and you know, getting it done. And, and so there's been everything in between. And so I think, you know, a lot of it is, is not malintended, but, you know, people are, are, are surprised to see sort of strong-willed females going at it in the field as well, and cultural differences can play into that. And mm-hmm. so it's one sort of humorous example just because I'd rather give that t- type of, of story. Um, yeah. The first time I was in the field in the Galapagos, I um, uh, had planned to deploy some instruments, and we thought it was going to be a lot windier than it was, so we had this big, like, you know, couple inch chain that we were gonna hold the instruments down within mm-hmm. the lake. And mm-hmm. this lake is in a crater, so there's like a 200 foot cliff to go down into the lake. So it already takes a little bit of masochism to wanna do it in the first <laughs> right. place, which I have a lot of, which yeah. explains a lot of the stories. But I have sort of developed a reputation there as this you know woman who came in with this chain because we, when we realized how hard it was to get this to the site, um, my response was, was it was on sitting in the boat deck and everybody was just kind of looking at it like now what are we going to do and I just grabbed it picked it up threw it around my neck and said let's go <laughs> and the, the you know captain of the boat um, who was Ecuadorian just looked at me like he had never seen something like me before and right. like it was just the weird and he just still tells the story of me coming and just grabbing the chain and just going for it and he's he acts like it was just the craziest, the craziest thing. thing like I and I am crazy yeah. it's okay like there's <laughs> got to be a little bit of crazy in you to do some of the things that we do in the field sure um in a safe way of course but you know we got that chain to the lake and we set it up and and, there and did what it. you had to do and I wonder do you think he would have had the same reaction if it was a man who had thrown the chain around his neck and said let's go Probably not quite as much shock. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I've had experiences like that as well where, um, as you know, I did my field research in Tibet, 
And when I went, it was in 1999, and a lot of the men over there would say to me, oh, I'd never let my wife do this, or I'd never let my daughter do this. And, um, you know, I was the only woman there. And so Mm -hmm. it was this strange sort of I'm surrounded by people who think I'm going to fail kind of feeling. And, you know, there's two ways you can go with that. You can let it defeat you and think, yeah, I'm going to fail. Or you can say, no, there's no way I'm going to fail, and I'm going to make this work. Yep, exactly. And sometimes we really need to find the pluck to make that second thing happen. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I love that story. Um, One last question. Yeah. And this is a little more personal. Yep. But um, you said you got married recently. Congratulations. And your husband is also a scientist. He is. So how is that? I'm also married to a scientist in the same field, and your husband's also in a related field. Mm -hmm. Um, So... How is it navigating being a two-scientist sort of family? Are there unique challenges there or things that are particularly wonderful about that? Yeah. So I think that's one of the examples, too, where it requires a good amount of pluck. Um, It's awesome, as you know. It's um, great to be able to come home and talk science or not talk science, but we can if we want to. And, um, you know, we are in similar fields, so there's a lot of, you know, biking home and chatting about proposal ideas and papers. Yeah. and so I really enjoy that, and um, and so it's been really um, a great aspect of our relationship. But getting two jobs and and the field is is really tough. And so I think one of the sort of pluckiest of times has was getting through the the few years where we, you know, weren't together and trying to navigate um, uh, two positions in academia. And it's hard. And I'm trying to change uh, the dialogue about it too because. Part of the challenge was that, you know, coming back to the pluck that people will tell you that, you know, it can't be done right. and it's so hard and they're there, don't try. And, right. um, you know, you shouldn't just be happy with what you have. But, you know, the right place and the right university will, will recognize um, both of your worth. And so I think it's just about finding that right place for both of you. And we're really excited and fortunate to to be here and have that place. That's so. wonderful. Um, Paul and I went through the same sort of thing, although he was he job hunted before I was finished, and so he got a job. And then it was sort of, you know, I'm going to go wherever he goes and then hope that a job comes available that I can apply for. Some of what drove me to apply for a non-tenure track position was this thought that we're going to have children and I want to be have a little more flexibility. Um, but again, U of A and geosciences in particular being a wonderful place where they recognize the value Um, in both of us and giving us opportunities to be in the department, which is great. That's not true for everybody. And we've typically heard in academia, they say thing like a two-body problem, right? Like this is a problem (laughs) instead of an opportunity, which it often can be um, an That's why we should start calling it the two-body opportunity. And every time I've been talking about it over the last couple of years, I've tried to frame it in that way. And I do think it helps because it is an opportunity in the right place. We'll see that value. And you know, if it's if there's not a good fit for you and your partner, then there's another place that'll be a good fit for you and your partner. And it's about a lot of patience and perseverance and a lot of, I mean, a huge testament to my husband for flying out to Boston over and over again to be with me because, mm-hmm. you know, his schedule was a bit more flexible than mine when I was teaching and, you know, making it through it and just keeping your head to the ground and being plucky. That's right. Did he have a position when you were doing that or was he a postdoc? He was a postdoc. He was a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where was he? So we were in a kind of a similar position where I, you know, got the job first and then we just had to navigate it. He was in Colorado and I was oh, in yeah. Boston. 
you hear so. that a lot as well in academia that people spend one, two, three years apart mm-hmm. because you get jobs at separate, uh, separate institutions or one's postdocing and one's working. Exactly. And then it's just how do you sustain a relationship that way and at the same time be able to focus on your work, which takes a lot of time when you're a scientist. It is hard. There's a lot of Zooming. Or Skyping. <laughs> That's right. You do what you have to do, I guess. Exactly. And, you know, with the right partner, you can make it through it. But it is tough. But I do think it's important to send the message out there that it is possible. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the right partner and the right, you know, fit, it does happen. It's just a matter of patience and perseverance. And that it's not always just the man who's getting the job offer exactly. these days, which I think is important to recognize that sometimes, you know, um, it's the women who are being hunted and sought after and who get these great job offers um, and husbands who are coming along. But sometimes it's the other way around and it shouldn't be looked at as, oh, my goodness, this guy's bringing a wife with him. Yeah, and I think in either situation, it's just important, you know, to be in a place like ours that recognize the value of both, because no matter what, you have one partner who's a trailing partner. Mm-hmm. And there's some places that treat your partner like a trailing partner. That's and there's right. other places that are like, you're two unique individuals that bring great things to the table, and we're mm-hmm. going to treat you as the scientists that you both deserve to be treated as. Well, I'm so thrilled that Geosciences at U yeah. of A is the place that ended up being that place for you. Me too. Um, I'm so glad to have you back uh, in our department. Yeah, it's wonderful too. to have another plucky lady in our <laughs> department. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me about your work and about your journey. Absolutely. Um, it was super fun. Thanks, Jess. Thank you so much. Plucky Ladies Podcast is recorded in the studios of the Office of Digital Learning at the University of Arizona. Special thanks to the team for recording, sound editing, and photography. You can catch all episodes of Plucky Ladies on SoundCloud, iTunes, and on my website, jesscap.com. That's J-E-S-S-K-A-P-P.com, and click the tab labeled The Podcast. Send me a message with your plucky story, and it might be featured on a future episode. Subscribe to Plucky Ladies Podcast and come along on all of my journeys into female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence.